Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Reality Bites, a podcast about sex, love, relationships, and dating in the digital age. I'm Courtney Kosak. I'm Steve Hernandez. And this is a very special cold edition of the show. <laughs> Sorry if my voice sounds different. <laughs> yeah, does some people sound sexier when they get sick. Um, <clears throat> oh, yeah, I thought that. <laughs> Not you. Uh, hey. <laughs> you sound phlegmy. Okay, that's gross. Yeah, it is gross, Courtney. And I wish I, you didn't invite me here today. <laughs> so today uh, we have uh, Paul Gilmartin on the show. And he's the host of the Mental Illness Happy Hour. And um, it got Steve and I thinking about our own kind of dealings with mental health as they pertain to our relationships. And I think one of your big last relationships, you really had to deal with somebody who had mental health issues, right? Yeah. So my last like serious relationship before my current boyfriend, which now feels like kind of ancient history at this point, but was like obviously a very big, important thing in my life for a while. Um, but we dated on and off for, I don't know, like four years when it was all said and done with like gap in between and stuff um but yeah there was he was had a lot of anxiety and depression and it wound up like really seriously seeping into our relationship and actually left me like um kind of broken at the end because in this particular instance I think in him working through his own stuff he would start to also diagnose me. And so then he would decide like what, according to the, what, what is the, uh, DSM yeah, manual? Yeah, yeah. Like what tendencies I had and like what, you know, I could be diagnosed with, which is like <laughs> really, un he's not a professional. He just like had issues himself. Yeah. So had you been up to that point, had you been with anyone else with that? with mental health issues like that to that extreme? Um, n not to that. My first boyfriend had a bunch of stuff that listened to me turn right around and be like, that was undiagnosed. <laughs> 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 but, um, he, but there were a lot of other things happening with my first boyfriend. Like, you know, he had, um, lung cancer when he was a teenager and like it kind of affected the way that he thought about the world and like how attached he was to, to living and like, you know, just a lot of stuff. Like it had like really deep implications and we were so young that it just felt different in dealing with that. And once I was like extricated from that relationship, um, I think for the most part I made much better decisions about who I dated for a while. 
Um, but some of this stuff is really insidious. And like, we, we were just talking about this, but like, I, I'm a fixer or like, I'm a rescuer. And I like to like, I, I don't, I don't do this. I try not to do this anymore. And it's something that like, I think you have to really ask yourself hard questions about to make sure you're not perpetuating a cycle like this. But, um, yeah, I think that is a tendency. So for me, so to get into this relationship where someone like needed those things from me felt good for a while until like, I don't know, it was flipped around and got convoluted and, and while there was mental illness things happening, there were also, um, he was very smart (laughs) and which is a wonderful quality, but, um, not when they're using it against you, not when, not when it's manipulative. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I used to say that rescuing is probably more of a, a woman quality, but the older I get, the more I, I have a few friends, male friends that, are just as bad at that. They don't find anyone attractive until the woman is for sure probably doesn't want them or is in a place where they can come and save them and help them. So it definitely isn't just a woman thing. Men are, are the exact same way. I'm not that way. I'm like, uh, although I, the older I get now, I, I probably, I'm going to have to go to therapy this year. Obviously, I, I, you know, I come from an abused past and all that stuff, but I think uh, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, I can't ignore like the things that are probably you think when you grow up that way that sometimes you think you can get out because you get by okay in the world you you think you can get you got out scot-free and then the older you get you're like oh no i'm kind of a monster but uh so i'm going to have to go and even talking to paul uh it made me think like okay i can't like not go to it anymore um i what i do is i like to take care of the woman i'm with so i'm I do a pretty good job at that too. I um, I envelop them, and I'm very sweet and good and nurturing and nice. And then, like, I think I do that so that uh, they don't ever catch me. They don't get that I don't need them. So if by not needing them and me taking care of them, the thing that's fucked up that after a few years I go, okay, well, I'm gonna go. And then they're like, you know, they feel loved and all that stuff, but I never really. I'm consciously trying to, for whatever way that works, I'm trying to... Like ne- allow yourself? Allow myself to need them too. But also, especially in this climate of, you know, men... Of like women being moms or like taking care of a man too much. I don't know what that looks like as like a healthy man. I don't know what it looks like to let... Uh, to to need a woman and, and, and what that would look like for my own life. So, I, I mean, it's pretty confusing if you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, totally. So, yeah, like I could, I guess I could let Julia like baby me a little bit, but I don't know, I don't know if I have access to my heart in ways that, that maybe regular people do. And um, so <laughs> I'm going to have to go to therapy this year. Yeah, but uh, therapy is like actually like a wonderful thing. And one of the things that, like, yes, you know, my relationship with that person ended um, and it was really painful for a while, but I don't have any regrets about dating him or the work. Like I said, I had to do a lot of work on myself after because I thought I was convinced that I was like so broken and I don't think I actually was, but I'm truly glad 
not in the way that he thought I was or whatever. Like for a while, he had like me trying out different psych drugs that were totally unnecessary. Like it went oh, to you a, tried medication. It went to an extreme that I didn't need, but yeah. that I'd become convinced that I did. So anyway, like that part was fucked up. But my after exploration and leaving um, that relationship and like doing a lot of work on myself and going to therapy and whatever, I'm like forever indebted to that work. And I, you know, feel really grateful for the person that it kind of molded me into today. So anyway, the up, well, the up and downsides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's great. And then Paul talks about this too, is that, you know, even compared to 15 years ago, we talk about mental health now in such a, a healthy way where people aren't ashamed, where people uh-huh. can, I mean, you and I know now, I mean, I know like so many people now who uh, say, hey, I'm, I, I suffer, you know, I have anxiety, I do that kind of stuff and I don't want to go to that party because it makes me uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I don't want you to be uncomfortable, you know. Yeah. So there, everyone comes from a place of depression where people, I think, even understand that their depression or their anxiety or any mental health issues, that that doesn't, that's not who they are. And uh, a lot of that stuff, I mean, I, I don't say this lightly, too, but Paul's podcast is so big that uh, it is through things definitely like the mental uh, health Mental illness. Mental illness <laughs> hour where people start it, where it gets in the zeitgeist and uh, people are able to deal with the problems without shame. A lot of it comes from shows like Paul and from Paul directly. So uh, I think this is a very interesting episode and uh, I really am grateful that we got to spend this time with Paul. And I think you guys are going to really like this episode too. So um, without further ado, here's uh, Paul Gilmartin. You guys, we have a very special guest today. Uh, Why do you lie right out of the gate? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You're a childhood companion, Paul. <laughs> oh, you watched Dinner in a Movie? I love Dinner in a Movie. Oh, it was my favorite. <laughs> very flattered. I'm sorry I interrupted. Go ahead. We're here with Paul Gilmartin uh, of Dinner in a Movie fame and uh, host of the Mental Health Happy Hour. Mental Illness Happy mental Hour. Mental Illness Happy Hour. Yeah. Um, Nothing healthy about it. well that's the goal right of the podcast it is to achieve mental health (laughs) um thank you so much for coming out and joining us my pleasure um so yeah what was the impetus for that podcast i'd gone off my meds and um suicidal thoughts came back and i didn't realize it was the depression and i thought man I've been in therapy. I see a psychiatrist. I believe that mental illness is a real thing, and I got fooled by it. And I thought, there's so many people out there that don't even believe mental illness is a real thing. They think it's just a weakness or, you know, you need a change of attitude. And I thought, you know, a podcast would be a perfect way to talk about it because I have a lot of crazy friends, a lot of friends in support groups, and we'll just have honest conversations and maybe hearing stories. Excuse me. Hearing somebody's story will inspire somebody to to go get help. And at the very least, I thought, you know, it could be compelling to people who aren't afflicted. Uh, It's very compelling. Thanks. Um, So, but you had gone prior to these thoughts and and your like actual treatment of depression. Mm -hmm. There was like a long period where you were undiagnosed, correct? Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was self-medicating with uh, drugs and alcohol for a, for a long time. And then it, uh, you know, as it does for most addicts, it just started backfiring. 
and uh, I just got lonely and depressed. And it's funny because I was at the height of um, my career, uh-huh. you know, as a TV host, making great money and having good visibility. And I thought about killing myself 50 times a day. And when you're in that place where you are achieving what you had Uh set out to do as a kid and you're feeling empty and sad all the time, it is a scary fucking place. When people who, uh, you know, rock singers kill themselves, Uh I totally get it. Because how scary does it have to be for them to have this life that's a hundred times more amazing than mine is, but they're still battling depression or and they can't feel it. That's the thing that really sucks about depression is you can intellectually appreciate your life, but you can't emotionally absorb it. Mm-hmm. It feel like you're looking at good things from the other side of a plexiglass window and it is scary in retrospect uh how when when were you first depressed when you when you look back how old were you when you first felt you know honestly i think probably in grade school um but kids are pretty resilient and you find things to distract Uh yourself and so um Girls and guitars and hockey uh, <laughs> were a distraction. Um, they still kind of are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so. I heard. I, th- I think I heard you say this on uh, your podcast that if you wouldn't have been at this like successful point when shit kind of started hitting the fan, that you m- might not have even like sought treatment or known that things were as seriously wrong. Yes, because I would have thought it that it was my professional or personal situations rather than something much deeper. And uh, my my ex um, was instrumental in nudging me towards help. Uh, She never shamed me uh, about it. And she was um, she never shamed me about my drinking. She expressed concern, uh-huh. and she expressed concern about uh, my my mental state, my depression, and um, I could no longer deny that she was wrong. And what year was this? Ninety nine. I mean, the way people view mental health now compared to almost twenty years ago is like night and day. It is, and I think it, social media gets a bad rap. You know, you know, as it it's all bad, it has helped bring a lot of people together. A lot of people together. It's really, it's kind of like, you know, blaming the telephone. Well, you know, the conversation you're having on the telephone has everything to do. It's not the, <laughs> it's not the delivery system. It's the message. Yeah, totally. Um, so, so when you were having, like, things were coming to a head in your relationship, what are things that maybe you're, partner did or that uh a good partner would do that can kind of like help well i think what she did um was ideal she expressed her truth um but she didn't hound me she didn't nag me and she didn't shame me and um and when i would come up short in the relationship through being 
you know, either cold or withdrawn, uh, she would she would point that out. I don't know if she realized that that was part of the depression because she never verbalized that. I'm, I know she probably knows that now, but um, it, so she she would express to me, for the most part, what um, it was like to be her in mm. our relationship. And it's really important, I think, for the partner um, to express what it is that they're experiencing um, without cornering that other person by saying, you're this, you know, you're doing this. And, you know, instead of saying, you know, you make me sad, you make me lonely, saying, I'm feeling really sad, I'm feeling really lonely. Um, you know, when you express it in terms of your feelings, um, the other person can't deny your feelings. And you're giving them an opportunity, you're opening a door for them to come comfort you, as opposed to attacking them to prove you're right. You know, how how good is it for a relationship when you want one of you in a conversation to be the victor and the other to be the vanquished? You got to still live with that person that you've just, mm -hmm. you know, um, destroyed in a in a uh, an argument. So that's one of the biggest things I learned in uh, joint therapy and therapy and support groups is how to express what I'm feeling that 99% of life is recognizing what we're feeling and finding the healthiest way to deal with it. That's so true. <laughs> you know, and why we don't teach that in kindergarten is beyond me. Why in high school are we teaching fucking algebra? <laughs> you know, have it be an elective course for kids that are interested in it, but for fuck's sake, teach people boundaries and how to understand emotions and how to recognize mm -hmm. them and I didn't even know half the shit that want, went on in my house when I was a kid mm -hmm. was super fucked up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, let, let's get into the lighter dating stuff. <laughs> Wait. Yeah. Well, I, I want, where did you come up doing comedy? Uh, Chicago. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's a great city, man. It's a great city. I still think it's my favorite. It's the, my favorite comedy city. It, it, it's so good because... You have a lot of the opportunities um, that you wouldn't have in a smaller city, but it doesn't have the looking over your shoulder like you do in L.A. or New York, you know, yeah. where the pressure's on every set. Oh, somebody big might be in the crowd and I got to have a great show. And so it's it's nice. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, com camaraderie there. Too, because yes. for the exact same reason. Exactly. Like, I always thought that that was really different is after the show, everyone would just hang out and yeah. drink till four in the morning. And that always made for a nice tight yeah. community. And it makes for a big batch of alcoholics, too. Of course. <laughs> of course. I'm sure you went and drank at that place on Wells. Oh, I, I wouldn't know the streets, but yeah. I drank at many places there. Yeah. But uh, Chicago comics are always so funny. Because they move out here, and it, it literally usually takes them a year to figure out they have a drinking problem. <laughs> and then yes. they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I got a drinking problem. But it's yeah. so much easier there. It's it's easy there, and everyone... I, you just it, get the take the time, the like stage time and all that stuff to come, I feel like, fully cooked. 
mm-hmm. to LA instead of Me like too. like you said like there's uh, great opportunities but also it's not like in LA where you're like tr- you know have to cut someone to get 5 minutes or yeah. you know when i when i was starting out doing stand up in chicago uh which was around 87 88 there were 16 full-time clubs Sheesh. in chicago 16 so you started right at the tail end of the Right road. at the peak, <laughs> which was good and bad because the bar for what audiences wanted to hear was so low and generic <laughs> uh, that you, if you wanted to survive, you had to um, compromise in a way. When I look back now, I wouldn't have compromised the way I did Um one of the places I did open mics at, I loved, it was a place called The Roxy. It was on Fullerton. And <clears throat> it was a folk club. So they were a much hipper audience. And you could, in fact, if they felt like you were doing material that was mainstream, they would kind of go cold on you. But if they felt like you were doing something uh, risky and different, they would totally support you. And uh, I think that was really beneficial. Yeah. So like baby Paul, mm-hmm. were you did you feel confident with the ladies when you were like early years? Um I think I did in grade school. <laughs> it's very early. <laughs> he did say baby Paul. Yeah. <laughs> because I I was a popular kid. I went to a very small Catholic grade school. Uh-huh. I knew everybody, and while I certainly had my insecurities, um, I knew how to make girls laugh, and they thought I was cute, and so uh, I had some uh, feeling that I was included, Uh and then everybody started hitting puberty in eighth grade, and puberty didn't hit for me until sophomore year, so... When I was 16, I was 4'10 and weighed 85 pounds. Really? And I had glasses, and all my friends had gone to the Catholic high school. And I went from a class of 40 kids to a class of 1,300. And it sucked. And so when I discovered weed and alcohol, I was like, oh, this is how I will not feel. It wasn't conscious, but... Um, so I was very lonely and frustrated and um yeah i didn't feel like girls were interested in me until maybe my senior year of high school junior year i grew and by senior year i was like you know five nine and um but there was still always um i've struggled with objectifying uh women my whole life and i didn't see it until I got sober and I started going to support groups for intimacy as well. Mm. And one of the things I discovered is that what I experienced in my childhood from my mom was a form of incest. And I began to recognize that I was terrified of intimacy, that I viewed women as wanting to envelop me if i let them get to know me if i got into a committed relationship that they would drain me um and the answer for me was to always keep a a distance always 
um, kind of have my own secret inner life and not share it with them. And none of this was conscious. Mm -hmm. It was just a pattern. It was just a pattern uh, in my house to expose what you were feeling um, wasn't safe. And, or at least it didn't feel safe. Were your parents together? They were, but they did not like each other. My dad did not like my mom, but they wouldn't argue. They would just, um, my dad was an alcoholic, high functioning. He was, he was the most financially responsible alcoholic I've ever met. <laughs> Always kept his job, but he was, he had demons and he was trapped in his head. And so I just, I think subconsciously always had the feeling that there was something about me that wasn't enough. Uh -huh. And then the messages from my mom was, uh, were that there was something about me that was very special, but then she would turn around and say something really cutting. So I never really knew. I had this kind of Jekyll and Hyde feeling about myself that I was like, the most glorious piece of shit. Um, <laughs> and it's like hard to feel safe when that is happening. Really, really hard to feel safe. And so relationships, like one night stands were the best for me <laughs> because I could get the validation of charming a girl into taking her clothes off, but I didn't have to deal with her issues. Um, so... And, and because I was so lonely across the board, I didn't realize that the sex I was having was lonely. Uh-huh. Yeah. So is that is that primarily what was like happening in your 20s? Yes. Yeah. Not not really any serious or committed relationships? No. You know, and, to, and then till uh, my uh, ex and I uh, got together in my mid-20s, and, um, and that's where, uh, I think, you know, what, what they call, uh, anorexia, um, not food anorexia, but more social and sexual anorexia, um, kind of started to blossom for me. And what's that mean when you say that, uh, where you withdraw, you deny yourself, um, things that are, uh, nurturing healthy for you mm -hmm. and you tend to medicate yourself with things and you don't grow you just stay in a state of um treading water by uh, not dealing with what's happening um and you know for me it was drinking video games um you know whatever the way i used to go about hobbies was so obsessive and my friends would, would make fun of me. And I look back now and I can see that it was me surviving. It was me mm -hmm. not dealing with the demons in my head. And when I did finally break down in 2012, and I was still married then, and I went to my wife and said, my mom tricked me. She used me. I was a good boy and I didn't deserve it. And she said, I've been waiting 20 years for you to say that. Because she could see the first time she saw how my mom interacted with me, that it was creepy. And I couldn't see it. I didn't want to see it. Because there's a thing that kids do when they're in an abusive uh, environment 
is they blame themselves mm -hmm. because it is less scary than the truth that I'm in the care of somebody who is not safe. And so you tell yourself that truth until something shakes it loose and it's really hard to shake it loose. And that, that was five years ago, just five yeah, years ago. Yeah. And, and you had been going to therapy for a decade Decades. at that point, right? Support groups. That's it, how deeply it gets buried. That's how badly we want to protect the person who we have an abusive relationship with. And I don't want to demonize my mom. There are many things about her that are great. And I don't believe that any of this was intentional on her part. Um, I just think that she didn't have the tools when she was raised. And... My dad wasn't available, and I was the closest person. And and I think also genetically being an extension of her, I think it was a way for her to see herself and her sense of self. So um, objectifying me brought probably comfort and a, and a sense of validation to her. And I don't think she probably knew what she was doing. Mm -hmm. How important is that uh, to to after those years of therapy to actually put a name on something like that to be able to say that to your ex uh how freeing was that for you i don't think i can overstate it um because it's the the feeling that i got in my support group for intimacy and and the one for uh, drugs and alcohol when i realized that this battle I had was a thing and this wasn't just all moral failings on my part that I was up against something that I was powerless over and that I needed help it felt like my whole life I've been a three-legged dog and I walked into a room of three-legged dogs <laughs> <laughs> yes that's amazing yeah. so so your mid-20s you met uh a person that you went on to have like a very long relationship, 28 year, 28 year relationship yeah. with were there, you know, but you were having these like personal kind of struggles. Were mm -hmm. they manifesting in that relationship? How did it? I think it, in the ways of me being withdrawn, me uh -huh. being withholding, uh, being cold, I couldn't see it then. Um, and this was even after you started getting help. Uh, after I got sober, things got much better. What year was that? Uh, 03. Okay. Yeah, and so I've been sober since then. that was like more like mid-30s? Uh, 40. I was 40. 40. Yeah. And, but I still hadn't dealt with the intimacy stuff. I hadn't dealt with the mom stuff. Uh -huh. And my ex would tell me, I know you think you've dealt with your mom stuff, but you haven't. And it used to almost kind of piss me off. Uh -huh. And um, she was right. She was absolutely right. Um, and I think when I started going to the support group for intimacy, I kind of um, grew in, in one direction and she grew in another direction. And ultimately we, we parted ways, but it's amicable. And, you know, she's a great person. And I th think we still have love for each other. Um, and it was painful as fuck. Most painful thing I've, I've ever been through. Um, but... Um, all of this stuff was, it, it's like this progression. Each little step had to happen for the next uh -huh. step to, to happen. 
And, and uh, did I answer your question? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I'm just I'm trying to think about this in a way because it all it all kind of feels the same to me about the depression and intimacy things. When you were challenged about not being intimate enough with your ex, did you sense that she was right, but you had no idea how to access that? Well, I don't think she ever came out and said, um, you're not intimate enough, but she would express feelings that, you know, she was feeling this or she was feeling that. And, um, you know, it didn't take a rocket scientist to realize that I wasn't showing up in certain ways. But did you feel like if she wouldn't have told you anything, did you feel fine about it? I guess so. I. But there was masking going on, right? Yeah, I knew that I was sad. I knew that I felt empty. I thought that was just how I was born and that was my lot in life. I didn't know that I was battling alcoholism, drug addiction, um, and uh, surviving incest, uh-huh. you know, covert incest, but nonetheless, you know, the, the effects of covert incest are every bit as um, damaging as overt incest or even, you know, a physical abuse or emotional abuse or even neglect because all of those things send the same message to the kid, which mm-hmm. is you don't really matter. Mm-hmm. My needs are more important than yours. I mean, it must have been so hard because I, 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 I don't think I've even... I, I understand that uh, people can be emotionally and sexual. Parents can be that way with it. But even calling it covert, I, it makes sense to me why it took so long for you to fucking put a name on it and to figure it out. Because, I mean, nobody even wants to say it, right? No. And I still feel <laughs> guilt and shame um, and doubt when I use that word. Um, what do you mean when you say doubt? Like because of how it would affect her? or Yes, because, because I feel like I'm throwing her under the bus that other people had it worse. Uh And intellectually, I know that's not the case. That's what all survivors do. But emotionally, I feel like I'm betraying her and I'm being a baby and an exaggerator and I'm doing it for attention. Well, yeah, as somebody who who experiences depression and who's been at the hands of abuse and all this stuff, that's what you're always going to... And I mean, for the longest time, that's what society has kind of made people to feel like, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you started the podcast six years ago, there's no way you could have thought that it would become this this uh, big locomotive or that you would have been making a living doing this stuff, Never right? in a million years. <laughs> there's no way. Never. No, and it's not why I started it. Of course and, not. Uh, and uh, it's like, I want, I want to be a... <laughs> Uh, financial success. I'm going to get into poetry. <laughs> well, also philosophy. I think it's so funny, even though co- comedians, if you know comedians, you know they are like some of the saddest, most depressed, angry people out there. Yeah. But it's not as a comedian, you're like, I can't I can't believe this is what I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's bizarre. And the funny thing is, is I don't miss uh, being a road comic at all. Uh, I don't miss being on TV at all. It's a relief. Uh, I realized in the first year of doing dinner and movie that I don't really like being on TV. I like the perks of it, uh-huh. but I don't like the compromises, the creative compromises of it. And I don't like the pressure um, of uh, just feeling like I can't make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I can't make mistakes. Even today, on the uh, to this day, on the podcast, 
Um, I agonize over things when I feel like it's a mistake. Um, that what do people you mean are going that like 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 listeners are going to leave, and and I'll have to find a day job. What kind of mistakes? Like technical or like word choice or like not technical, no, and not word choices. Uh, more opinions, uh. ways of expressing myself. Um, it's it's this subconscious feeling that I am inherently out of step with everybody else. And it's only a matter of time until I make the big blunder where they realize it. Imposter syndrome. And it all goes away. And it all goes away. Yeah. But isn't it so, because like the first uh, chunk of your show is people writing in and telling you exactly things like that, right? So comforting. Yeah. The show helps me as much as it helps anybody else. It's, it, in, in a way, it's a support group. Um, it's a community. And that's what I love about podcasting. You guys know it is, it's different than other mediums because it's so interactive and it's so intimate. Uh-huh. Being in somebody's ears is really intimate. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So um, you, your long relation, your marriage ended like a year and a half ago? Mm-hmm. August of 2016. So what has... I, I haven't been married. Steve's yeah, got a divorce divorced, but I, under we were his together belt. seven years. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's I can't imagine 28. I don't even know what the fuck. I can't wrap my mind, mm. wrap mind around it. I don't I, want to. <laughs> I, yeah, I've gone through but breakups after like three and a half years and just been totally gutted. And it took me like, I don't know, almost a year and a half to put myself back together. I do stand up and I have jokes where I, I like, I, I mean... It's so crazy because I'm from an abused background and everything like that. And uh, I've always just been like, oh, you know, that's my life. That's my lot. And I didn't think much of it. But I don't think it was until my divorce that I like was like, oh, geez, this is terrible. This yeah. is true pain. And to me, it was like, oh, this is the first time where I'm like, oh, life's not fair. Like life is pretty. This is pretty fucked up. Um, How long did it take until you felt the pain subside um i don't know it's been like three years or something like that so i don't know maybe maybe a couple years i told myself i wasn't going to date for a year because i always get into things and then right at the year mark i got into a thing and then um i think i was just still experiencing things and i i I don't think i'm done I, i don't i should probably go to therapy for it because um you said this summer like you think about her every uh, oh yeah, but day, I, but I, not in a like y- yeah, weird yeah. way or whatever. Just like as while a you're present. parking your car outside her place, yeah. you think about her. Yeah, well, you know, well, I have binoculars, yes. you know, yes. and I can't believe she's become a morning shower. You know, she used to be night. Oh, oh, her I, silhouette, <laughs> her silhouette, her sweet, sweet silhouette. Yeah, um, no. Is yeah, that no. a second silhouette? <laughs> God damn it! Oh my god. <laughs> no, I yeah, uh, I just I, I think if someone's just a part of your life, you're gonna think about them every day. Why wouldn't you? Um, but and I'm so grateful that we're that we are friendly uh, with each oh, other. Yeah. Are and you friendly with yeah, your yeah, ex? Yeah, we're friendly too. And she didn't have to be. Um, I I think there's not a. I mean, there's not a. I'll think of times where I was terrible, like 
all yeah. the time. I'll you know I'll be in the grocery store and I'll be like, ugh, I, yeah, I, I hate that memory. Yeah. Like I I can't believe that I you know I did that and I wouldn't do it now. And it's only been yeah. a few years. Um, but yeah, where it's like all the time I'm like, man, if I could just go back and be a better partner. But I it took the divorce in many ways. To, for me to figure out how terrible I was and uh, how much I loved her and how I could do things better. So mm. my, you know, my current relationship is obviously benefiting from that immensely. Yeah. But um, did, did you set any guidelines for yourself in, in terms of dating? No. No. Um, I just knew I didn't want to. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I'm not looking. Um, I'm sure time will come when I'll put myself out there yeah um but uh the biggest thing i learned the most beneficial thing i learned um in a, a relationship is when she would be venting about something is the realization that she didn't want me to fix it Ugh. she just wanted me to listen and empathize and that is the most important tool in a relationship. I mean, that's men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Stuff. And I no. hate to say that. I hate to say that, but that's a that's a very common thing, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I think that, so, but I think also I feel that way too with my boyfriend when I hear him like go through a thing and try to, and I hear him talk through a thing out loud and I also want to jump in and be like, you know, do this, this, and this. So, you know, just because I want him to feel better and I want it to, his process to go faster, but that's not at all what the person needs from Sometimes you. the best thing that you can give that person is to just give him your undivided attention and then give him a hug and hold him. Mm -hmm. That's like, you can never go wrong with that. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm I'm very lucky. Unless the person doesn't like hugs, <laughs> they're out there, and they don't know you. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, my girlfriend is a stand-up comic as well, and so one of the cool things that stand-up has taught me is that you can't. If you're gonna give someone advice, your bit, you, all you can tell them is how to be the comic that you are, and that doesn't. That's not how comedy works. Yeah. You've got to let people figure out their process. I mean, any advice I give, I'm just saying, oh, be like me, but that won't make her a better comic. So even because I can't tell her that way about jokes, I mean, maybe twice a year, there'll be something where I've got to really like say, well, have, maybe have you thought about this kind of thing? Yeah. So that's really helpful about being a standup is it's like you can't give anyone advice. Everyone's got to figure out their own shit by themselves. And then the older you get, the more you realize nobody takes anybody's advice anyways. <laughs> They're going to do what the fuck they want to do. Uh, my ex did stand up and she uh, actually taught me because she was uh, established before I had started. And uh, she uh, uh, kind of opened my eyes to the importance of editing. Uh -huh. And uh, a lot of times she would, you know, I'd say, hey, what do you think about this? And she would say, where's the where's the joke? And, <laughs> and I would realize that, oh, yeah, this thing I wrote was just me wanting to point out a hypocrisy. But it needs something for the audience. Uh -huh. The audience just doesn't want to be lectured. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, let's talk about the evolution of the podcast a little bit. Mm -hmm. When you started off, you were probably, uh, your intention was maybe just to deal with depression and anxiety and things yeah, a little bit. The, the original one was to talk about um, depression among creative people. And um, of course, it quickly expanded beyond that as you begin to realize that 
it's you know mental illness um addiction and trauma or it's a big tangled bowl of spaghetti and trying to separate each strand not saying that they always go together but it's really common that you see them uh, uh together and and anxiety uh, as well um it's interesting i came across i just recently moved and there's still some stuff that i'm unpacking and i came across a journal that was only just a couple of months and it was leading up to the podcast and so i have all of my thoughts about it and it's interesting looking back and reading the entry one day that says I think I should do a podcast. I think I might do it about mental illness. Yeah. I wonder if people will listen. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Which was like eight years ago, seven um, years ago? 2011. 2011? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's nuts. And the, the, the podcast that I found, because, you know, people talk a lot of shit about podcasts or that there's too many or everyone's starting them. But if you're like passionate about the thing and like you truly are like, man, I would be doing this no matter what. Yeah. And obviously if yours is withstood the test of time and it's wildly popular. Um, have you ever thought about doing it? In, I don't even know why I was going to ask that. The TV form of it or some kind of thing? You know, I've been asked that question and I don't think so because I love just audio Mm -hmm. yeah there's something about not having to worry about what you look like Mm -hmm. the editing is simpler um because i play guitar i had been familiar with pro tools before i started doing the podcast Mm -hmm. and so editing i already knew how to do all of that stuff um so it's just it i don't have to travel um (laughs) you know when you're then if you're doing video you need somebody to help you with that Mm -hmm. there's more storage involved and i'm not ruling it out but today i'm i'm happy with it being just audio but there are some times where i wish i had a clip that i could upload Mm -hmm. because i think for social media it might be um better and if i ever want to do a documentary about the show someday or somebody else does it would be nice to have some some video but for the most part I like, yeah. I like it how it is. When this podcast first started, we were doing YouTube and uh, and then just using that audio mm-hmm. for the podcast. But I found since uh, it's probably been in this form for like nine months. But the interviews that we do are now so much more. I pe- feel like people feel like comfortable revealing themselves in a way that before they were like kind of more superficially performing. It's an, it's not really like a conscious Now that a camera isn't there. Thing. Yeah, there's no camera. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes total sense. So and yeah. For years, the anonymity probably plays a big part. You said you have guests on that are people you haven't met or just listeners to the show. Yeah. How does that happen? Well, it started the first year that I was doing the podcast. Uh, a listener emailed me uh, some broad strokes of her story and she was born in Iran, and she was um, like 18 when the Shah, or the uh, when the Shah was overthrown and the Ayatollah uh, took over. And she was a Marxist, and her boyfriend was a Marxist. And the Ayatollah and his people targeted any threat to their power because they hadn't really consolidated power yet. Hmm. And so the people were being arrested and executed. And that's where her story 
begins. And it's, uh, it's one of the most fascinating episodes. And I thought, oh my God, if I open it up to listeners, there can be so many more stories. And, and to this day, I think some of the best episodes are the ones with listeners because the amount of stories out there, it, it's incredible. The, the trick is finding somebody who can articulate it in a mm-hmm. compelling way for an hour, mm-hmm. hour and a half. I think her episode was two hours long. And we didn't even get to the fact that she is a nurse in a psych ward. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> what, what, who's the Nadereh Fen- Fenoyan. Okay. Uh, N-A-D-E-R-E-H. And her last name is F-A-E-N-I-A-E-N, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but I, yeah. I was just listening uh, the other day and it was like episode like, 360 or so with that many episodes like what are what are your favorites from the archives it's so hard like when people would ask me from dinner to movie what was your favorite recipe or your favorite show i can just say some that that immediately come sure, come sure. to mind um christine keys was a really special episode um she, she passed away a couple of years ago or about a year ago um, but she's the mother of my friend Jeff Rosenthal, and he said, you should interview my mom because she was a child in the Warsaw Ghetto during the, the oh Holocaust. And her story is so poetic because she wasn't fully aware of everything that was going on. Um, and her story is really about her relationship with her mom, who had to survive, had to figure out how to protect her and her child. And she also talked about the ripples of, you know, experiencing what she did as an adult. And it was, uh, and she wound up uh, writing a book um, after telling her story. And um, yeah, that's a good episode. Uh, Teresa Strasser, I think, was one of the first guests where people were like, oh my God, that is a home run. That is a home run. Uh, We do this thing on the podcast sometimes call a, a fear off and a love off mm-hmm. where we trade fears back and forth and then loves back and forth and she and she wasn't lying she goes i am the usain bolt of fears and uh <laughs> she went into fears yeah she was great um there's an episode that that uh there's a couple episodes about borderline personality disorder that um are really popular, especially one with uh, uh, Celia Finkelstein. And that has had more downloads than than any other episode. It used to be uh, episodes with high profile people. Uh And uh, while she is a performer, you know, she's not as as well known as as some of the other guests. Um, That's a good one. Uh, Rhonda uh, Britton is an amazing one. It's, yeah. What's what's her story? Her, I don't want to ruin. Uh-huh. It, but there's a tragedy that occurs when she is a teenager that is jaw-dropping and the spiral it sends her into and then how she kind of pieces her life slowly back together. Um, oh, my God. Is that so what many... most people wind up, like, anecdotally from your experience coming in? And I mean, it seems like even when we have guests on this show and we don't go nearly as deep in that direction but it seems like we're all 
basically just recovering from our childhood. <laughs> just like our whole, the whole rest of our lives. We're either that or our happiness is pissing everybody else off. <laughs> or making them jealous. Um, what are some other episodes? Well, there's a list. Each year has a list of the listeners' uh, top 10 oh, favorites. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, but very often, uh, a couple of my favorites don't don't make it. But I record uh, more episodes than I air, so I don't air an episode if I don't like it. Um, I've held back many episodes, and I warn people before I record them, I can't promise your episode will air. Uh, because I think the subject matter you know, if you have a clunker that's, you know, got depressing subject matter, I, I would, if I was a listener, I'd be like, yeah, I don't want to experience that again. I actually love that strategy. Yeah. And we, I, we've, we haven't held any back, but that's do a good you, one. Do you, uh, do you ever get too depressed doing this stuff? I've gone through periods where um, I... Don't look forward to it, or it feels like a burden. Um, I think the emails uh, from listeners are the only thing that begins to tax me because a lot of times it will just be somebody purging all their trauma. And um, how many do you get a week? Uh, it depends. I, I probably get a half dozen a day. Um, how do you know? Do you read them all? I do. I do. Um, but sometimes if it's super long, um, I'll kind of skim it. Yeah. And, um, but I try to reply to, to everyone. If the podcast, um, were to take a huge leap in listenership, I wouldn't be able to keep up. So while I do want it to expand, there's also, um, it's in a nice place in that I'm the lone employee. I do everything myself except for the, the web. And there's a guy that does the, the web design because I don't know how to code. And um, there's something nice about not having to deal with people. <laughs> not, having, not having to rely on, on somebody else to, to do something. Um, I don't know. I, I, I like it. I just can't imagine reading those six, six or seven emails every day. I mean, you sit down with a cup of coffee and you know yeah. what it's going to be like. Um, but some of them are beautiful. Yeah. Some of them are life-changing. And, you know, when I get one that somebody is like, I didn't believe in therapy, and then I became a listener to your show, and I can't believe how much therapy has improved my life. And my relationship with my spouse is better. My relationship with my kids are better. I quit my shitty job, and I'm doing something I love now, you know emails like that or I was going to kill myself Saturday night and then I found your podcast oh. um, yeah um, it's it's much more life affirming than it ever is draining but I do worry that it will get to that point but I've been in support groups long enough to know that if my battery isn't charged I'm of no use to anybody else so I'll do whatever it is I have to do if I have to have somebody go through the emails and just give me select ones i'll i'll do that i'm i'm prepared to do that but thankfully i can i can handle it mm -hmm. right now 
So just before we uh, go, what would you say to someone who was maybe like kind of 25-year-old Paul who like has some unaddressed stuff or hasn't sought treatment or maybe just thinks like that's this is what life is supposed to be uh, about how to. It's a great question. Um, you know, I suppose it depends on what it is that they're battling. But the first thing I would say is you are not alone, no matter what it is that you're feeling. While the circumstances of your life may be slightly different than somebody else, until you begin opening up with somebody who's safe, and that's really important that you find somebody who's safe, and you'll get better at finding out who is safe. Um, you will be amazed at how universal your experience is and how much connecting to somebody who understands you and empathizes with you will change your life and you will also be able to change other people's lives because nothing can get through to somebody else like a story that they relate to, nothing. And that's one of the reasons I started the podcast, because the power of support groups um, was just people telling their stories. It's not some, you know, some professor lecturing that mm-hmm. that never. I don't think that's going to get anybody necessarily understanding mental health better. But when you hear somebody tell a story, you remember it. Do you find support groups uh, almost as helpful as just going to a therapist? Absolutely. Um uh, actually, possibly more. I think they're both. Actually, I think they're both equally helpful. Um, um, therapy can be really good for helping you see um, how other people are treating you, and support groups can be good for both seeing that and what your part is and how you treat people. Because uh, a lot of support groups will. will you'll get to the bottom of, of what makes you angry and what scares you. And through those revelations, you find out how you view the world, what your part is in things. And all of a sudden, kind of a spiritual dimension enters your life where principles become the thing that guide it instead of fear. And, you know, when people talk about higher power, this or that, it's really principles. It's trying to trying to do the right thing every day. And the peace that comes with that replaces the need to self-medicate. For me, that's that's kind of how it's worked. And if I'd never asked for help, I'd have never, uh, I'd never done it. So desperation can be the best gift that you've ever had. I would have not asked for help if I hadn't been desperate. Uh, so I'm grateful that I was, that I hit a bottom Thank you so much for coming out. Everyone should definitely check out the Mental Illness Happy Hour. And uh, where can the people find you on social media? Uh, At MentalPod on Twitter and Instagram. And there's a Facebook page for uh, the podcast. And I have a personal one too, but um, it's, uh, I think it's facebook.com slash mentalpod. I think that's it. Anyway, if you Google, you'll find all this shit. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you guys.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.